0: To Talking Tutors episode 141. I'm your host Natalie Gruninger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, let's begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune in to every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tutors Patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is a Tudor Rose Collection Candle Package sponsored by Clio Global. Clio's Tudor Rose Candle recreates the aromas of the Tudor court. This month's Talking Tudors Patron Prize will feature a Tudor Rose Candle, along with art prints of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, created by Clio partner Royalty Now. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors Live Talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. Next month, I'll be chatting to Sandra Vassoli and James Peacock about the ways in which Elizabeth I honoured her mother's memory. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. I'd also like to take this opportunity to wish you all a joyous, abundant, and healthy new year. Thank you for tuning in to Talking Tutors in 2021 and for so enthusiastically supporting my work throughout this challenging year. May 2022 be kinder to us all. Now on to today’s episode, I’m thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about life in medieval England is Tony Mount. Tony is an author, teacher and an experienced speaker who gives talks to groups and societies and attends history events as a costumed interpreter. She’s a member of the research committee of the Richard II Society and a library volunteer. Tony writes fiction and non-fiction books, articles for a variety of history magazines, and has created several online courses for MedievalCourses.com. She earned her master's degree by research from the University of Kent in 2009 by studying a medieval medical manuscript held at the Wellcome Library in London. Her BA with first-class honours, diploma in literature and creative writing, and her diploma in European humanities are all from the Open University. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Tony. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So, Tony, please introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Well, I'm Tony Mounts. I'm uh, quite ancient. I live in Kent in England, and I'm happily married to Glenn. Uh, We have a couple of sons who have long since flown the nest and married. Um, I really came to history quite late. Um, I'd always been interested, but I started doing my degree when the boys were doing their A-levels. I thought if mum was studying, that would encourage the boys, and it worked. So I didn't get my master's until 2009. Uh, my master's was a study of a medieval physician's handbook from 1453. And I wrote a few things, a few articles. People in certain places must have seen them. And I started to get known. I actually wrote a sort of suggestion for a book to the publishers, Amberley, they quite liked my idea, they changed it a lot, but the result was in 2014, at the grand old age of 60, I had my first book published, so that was 2014, and it's gone mad ever since, so I wrote, I'd written a novel as part of a creative writing course that I did for fun. And the publishers made global were asking extra articles for them, said, did I have anything else? So I said rather cheeky, I've got a novel I've written. Let's help send it. Send us the first couple of chapters. I did that on a Friday. On the Saturday, they say, can you send us the rest? <laughs> and on Sunday they offered me a contract so that's how the novels came about and I'm now writing number 11.
0: Wow that is absolutely amazing I I just I admire so much how how beautifully you write and how much you can produce that's that's amazing. Thank
1: you so that's that's my story.
0: Lovely, thank you so much. And and Tony, I wanted to ask you, you've got a new book out, How to Survive in Medieval England. Very exciting. So what was the inspiration behind this project?
1: Well, I just got an email out of the blue from the publishers, Sword, saying that they had an ongoing series of books, How to Survive in Ancient Rome, How to Survive in Ancient Greece, Would I like to do How to Survive in Medieval England? So it's actually their idea. And I was quite prepared to do that, especially as it it was a fun book. Most of my other factual books are fairly serious. But this one, I thought, had the opportunity to play Doctor Who, as though (laughs) you were going back in time, you were going to visit this period and what would you need to know? And I had huge fun in particular because they wanted me to interview people of the time. So I would research the background but then have to invent the character. And that was really fun. That does sound like a
0: lot of fun. Yes, I like the structure.
1: Yes, yes, I have like that. interviewing everyone from condemned prisoners to women with four husbands to royalties. So that,
0: that was fun. Fantastic. And we're going to dive into to talk a little bit about life in medieval England. So maybe we can start with houses. I know people are always very interested in, in what sort of houses people lived in. So maybe could you clarify the kind of time period that you mean when you're talking medieval and then also just tell us a little bit about the houses that ordinary people lived in?
1: Right, well, to me, Medieval is um, a very long time, but my remit from Penicill was from Henry II, 1154, up to 1485. It was just the Plantagenet era in England, which did go on for over 300 years, so plenty of uh, opportunities for good stories now the houses of the common folk do change quite a bit in this period at the start you have serfs who live in one room houses owned by their overlord they share it with their animals so it's pretty smelly they have very few windows keep the walk thin because there's no glazing. The windows would simply be openings in the water and door walls and that was about it. Very very little in the way of furniture and the fire would be in the middle of the floor and the smoke would escape out through gaps in all thatched roof, and when the doors open and out through the window holes, which you'd have wooden shutters to close out the weather. So that's the really lowest of the low. A step up from that would be the cotars or villains they were so called, cool, who would probably have two rooms, one for themselves, one for the animals, but They might have oiled parchment in the windows, which helped keep out the weather and let in a bit of light, though you wouldn't exactly have had a view. They would usually have a garden plot or toft out the back where they could grow their own, but even their house was owned by the Lord of the Manor. But by the time you get to 1485, there's a whole new class of people, the merchants and the craftsmen. And in London, they would live in quite nice townhouses. Some Some of the merchants and top craftsmen were earning had an income that equaled gentry and nobility. And you start to get glazed windows, chimneys, and other things which were marks of their wealth. So um, they might even have a bit of extra furniture,
0: a chair.
1: Wow. It was like the master's throne sort of thing. Yeah, very exciting, exactly. Yes. (laughs) Yes, so things changed quite a bit over the 300-odd years of the uh, Plantagenet. But um, no central heating, uh, no mod cons, and if you're really posh, you might have a, a guard robe, an indoor toilet, but on the whole, most people had a sort of uh, telephone kiosk at the bottom of the garden, that sort of thing. So that was your mod comms.
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I know. Tough, tough for us if we wanted to travel back in time. I'm not sure how I'd do with that, to be honest, Tony. Well, you'd have to get used to
1: the stink, I think.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And let's talk a little bit about the food that was eaten at the time. You you mentioned some people grew some of their own food, but what was the, the kind of common fare that was eaten day to day?
1: Well, the bread and ale were big things. They were so important that laws were passed in Parliament called the Assides of Bread and the Assides of Ale, which determined the standard of ale brewed, the uh, quality of a loaf, the size of a loaf, and in both cases, how much you could charge a specific quantity of ale or a specific size of loaf. A household loaf was supposed to feed that whole family and a household could include servants and apprentices and um, it was supposed to weigh 12 pounds and should cost a penny. According to the size of bread, ale had to be of a good quality and they had ale tasters to check that out. Every brewing would be sampled by the local ale taster and measuring cups were regularly checked to make sure customers were getting the correct amount their money the main sort of cooked meal for both rich and would be pottage now pottage could be made with oats it's actually where we get our work porridge from but um, it could be made with crushed peas and beans anything to thicken up sort of a vegetable soup which if you are wealthy enough you might add a bit of bacon to it or uh, even pork fat or something to give it a bit of flavour. But if you were rich, you, your version could be called frumentic, which was thickened with wheat grains uh, much posher and would often have venison mixed in with it or beef or something. Uh, and vegetables, basically it was a thick vegetable stew flavoured with meat possible, and it came as what they called a running pottage which meant if you upended the bottle it would eventually flop out onto your dish. A standing pottage which was so thick you could stand a spoon up in it and that was thought to be really good for you. Thicker the better. So they were the basics. And you just add almost anything to it weeds from the hedgerow if you were pour or posh stuff if you could fold it. So they were the basic. Things.
0: Yeah, so things that are obviously quite filling for people doing. Presumably, a lot of manual labour. I imagine so. And what about the clothing, Tony? At this point, obviously today, you know, we we buy and we get rid of things so often. But clothing was was very expensive in in those times. So, um, what did the ordinary person wear? I suppose.
1: Well, the poorest people would wear what was called homespun, which was literally. Woollen cloth that they'd spun, woven themselves, and then stitched together. It would be pretty easy. For a woman, it would just be a sort of two bits of material with a hole in the middle for the head. You'd have two more bits of material that you'd pin either side to make sleeves with a shift underneath to stop your woollen cloth getting sweaty and smelly. You'd wash the shift as often as you could, but the outer garment, which you just belt around the waist, that was basically it. And a short version for the men with braids or breeches to keep their legs very, very basic. There were more rules about your hair. A maiden would wear her hair loose to advertise the fact that she was free, looking for a husband. But the day you were married, your hair would be covered in a a veil or a coif or a cap, depending on the fashion of the day. And you were a loose woman if you showed your hair when you weren't meant to. And uh, it was also the badge of a prostitute to show off their hair. The idea was, you see, that Eve, back in the Garden of Eden, had led Adam astray. Not because she was running around naked, he didn't even notice that, but what tempted him to sin was her beautiful hair. A woman's hair, Once she was married, was only meant to be seen by her husband. But I have seen pictures in manuscripts where even in bed a married couple, both of them, got their hair covered. Maybe it was not tonight, darling, or something.
0: (laughs) Exactly. That's right. That's the sign. Keep your your hat on. (laughs) And, and I think, Tony, if I was travelling back in time, I'd be, I suppose, a little bit concerned about how I would keep myself safe about security. So can you tell us a little bit about what the ordinary people did in order to keep their families safe at this point?
1: Well, there was very little in the way of locking your doors and uh, securing your windows, not much of that sort of thing. The real big danger throughout the medieval period was fire so if you were sensible you'd probably keep a bucket of water always the coroner reports you get an awful awful lot of small children who are burned in the fire they fall in the cooking pot that sort of thing young girls were often sent to fetch water and you get coroner's reports that they fell into the well and drowned, or fell in the river and drowned. This sort of the Elderly people, too, have been found, found in wells. And of course, the coroner's reports only cover the people who actually die. I dare say there are an awful lot of accidents and near misses with fire. And water. When a baby was christened, part of its godparents' oath was to keep it safe from fire and water. They were the two main causes of accidents and deaths in in young people. That's that's one thing you really did have to guard against. Animals, too, can be quite dangerous Uh, in London. There were forever being laws issued telling people to keep their pigs under control because pigs were allowed to wander and forage for themselves. And the medieval pig was not that far removed from its wild boar cousin and could be really quite ferocious. You could get run down by a galloping horse, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, like most dangerous farm machinery, you know, harrows and um, pitchforks and things. Nothing come with health and safety instructions. So Boys fell out of trees. And uh, I did read one coroner's report of a boy who was sent out to remove a dead branch from a tree. And like a real nitwit, he sat on the branch and sawed it off closer to the tree. Oh, so no, fell off, he fell off. So, yes, yes, that was uh, in a coroner's report.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: So, yeah, obviously that guy was a poor short of a picnic, but there he was. So, yes, it's always danger in the uh, countryside, fire and water in particular. But so, I mean, you have asked me a question about the law so we can talk about keeping yourself safe from felons uh, shortly, if you want.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose the other thing you'd be concerned about, of course, would be falling ill and catching disease, of course. So what were some of the common diseases around at the time?
1: Well, most of the diseases um, you would get in a third world country. And in the book, I actually advise the would-be time traveller to have all their um, third world disease injections and their malaria tablets. There were some diseases that were missing. If you went back before 1348 in England, there wouldn't be plague. So that only arrives in 1348. Also cholera did not exist in this country until the 18th century when it was brought from India. But typhoid, dysentery, malaria in this country, especially in southern England. Where I live in Kent, we're not far from the marshes by the River Thames. And every summer there were cases of AU that people caught that's malaria in the Thames Marshes area. Um, childhood diseases like measles, mumps, whooping cough, could all be fatal because there was no treatment, and of course people weren't always tip-top health to fight it off. So that that was also a problem. But some other diseases, for example, smallpox which fortunately it's been eradicated now but in the 20th century it was still a killer disease because it's very contagious and there's no treatment but back in medieval times smallpox was listed alongside measles and chickenpox as a childhood ailment that most people caught and it does seem that smallpox the smallpox virus, actually mutated sometime in the Tudor era and became a a killer, which before it hadn't been any more dangerous than measles. But that will be in the next book, How to uh, Survive in Tudor (laughs) England.
0: Oh, wonderful. I didn't know you were writing that, Tony. That's really exciting. Yes, (laughs) we are
1: halfway through that.
0: I look forward to that one too, definitely. And so one of the things I love, I know, when I'm reading, you know, accounts from the past is to to look at some of the language that's being used and, and make connections with words we use today. So if we travelled back to the medieval period, what are some of the words that we might hear that we're not so familiar with today?
1: Well, there are words that uh, if you've ever looked at Geoffrey Dawson's Canterbury Tales, you might well have to keep flicking to the glossary at the back, but the real problem for us could be words that we think we know what they mean. For example, if I saw a well-dressed woman looking very attractive, the last thing you should say to her is that she looks nice, because nice was not a compliment. Nice was a specific description of a woman who was too fussy, nagged her husband, you know, nitpicking all the time, and it was actually a minor crime to be a nice woman. So things like that also... Today, we tell two-year-olds to stop being naughty. Now, naughty was a big thing. It literally meant you were less than naught, less than nothing. You were inhuman. And it's a term applied to murderers. So murderers are naughty. Toddlers are just misbehaving. Uh, A few other things. Amazing, today's most popular word, I think. Amazing meant that you were entirely baffled and confused. The word actually came to me. Amaze, like that handsome Court maze, was a place where you went to be confused and baffled and was. So if anything's amazing, it's just a complete mystery to you. Um, which I admit some of today's amazing things are, but that's what it meant. What else have we got? Oh, Cockney. Now, Cockney today is often used of a Londoner. I'm told that I speak like Cockney. It's it's just South (laughs) East England. Cockneys used to be Londoners born within the sound of boat Bell, which I nearly was, but not quite. But a Cockney in medieval times referred to a boy who was so spoiled by his mother that he was useless. That he'd never make a good student or a good agricultural worker. Um, It just meant a child who spoiled to the point of being good for nothing. And I must just warn any travellers, never say, oh my God, that is blasphemy. Beaten round the parish, if you say that, you will be fined for taking God's name in vain. So anything like that. On the other hand, if you uh, drop something heavy on your toe and use a four letter expletive, that's probably okay. But do not say, oh my God.
0: I think a lot of us would get into trouble, wouldn't we? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes I think people probably would
0: oh that's so interesting I love hearing about the different uses and the way these words have, have evolved over time it's so so interesting and and I always think about the pronunciation as well I think that would have probably caught some of us out I was reading recently yes. um a poem that's attributed to Thomas Wyatt it's a rhyming poem except that it doesn't rhyme for me and I so it's obvious that there are some words that I'm not pronouncing as the Tudors would have pronounced so it's it's quite interesting when you read poetry out loud that's supposed to be rhyming because you you get a bit of an idea as to how they pronounce certain words.
1: Yeah the whole of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales it's supposed to write and and it's it's quite rare to find but, but even the people at the time had trouble understanding each other. When William Caxton started printing press in 1475, one of the first books he published was Canterbury Tales. And it says in the introduction that he's having trouble knowing which words he should use in these books. And the example he gives is a a merchant from Hull, was sailing to France on business and a storm at sea drove him onto the coast of Kent where he'd never been before. So all the passengers get off the ship and he goes and asks a local woman if he can, if she's got any eggs that he should, could have for breakfast. And the Kentish woman looks at him and says, sorry, don't speak French only asked for eggs. And one of his friends, who's been to Kent before, asked for iron, spelled E-Y-R-E-N, and the housewife serves up for him again. So William Caxton said, how do I know which words to use so that everyone understands? But it was a problem even in those days.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating, and and I suppose apart from getting into trouble for saying the wrong thing, there were also other laws that I presumably we need to follow. So, do you want to tell us about some of those? Well, yes,
1: people wrote the law pretty much then as they do today. Haven't come across any examples of serial killers. Apparently, that's a Victorian invention, or it could be that they will not caught. Call- Um, You know, lack of forensics and things. But, as I've already said, morals were very important. And there were actually local beadles in London, particularly. Each ward would have a beadle. It's the oldest paid elected office in the world, as far as we know. the beadle was called the alderman's watchdog. Now the alderman was your town councillor for the ward and every month the beadle would report him any dodgy customers that he knew of in the ward and the alderman was expected to act on that information within 14 days, and if he didn't, the beadle could report him to the mayor. But um, for instance, if there was an unmarried couple cohabiting, and it was thought that they were up something, the beadle and his constables could just storm in and arrest them. It was usually the woman who got into trouble. The man would get slapped with, but the woman could be prosecuted. It was always her fault for leading him astray. Now, if a real crime was committed, something stolen or somebody assaulted, then the first person on the scene, if the victim was no longer capable, was expected to raise the cue and cry. This is your original neighborhood watch. System and the hue and cry. The hue was that you yelled as loud as you could, you banged spoons on pots and pans, you hammered on doors, you roused the neighbourhood, and everyone who was capable was expected to pursue the villain. If you had the slightest idea who it was and apprehend him if possible. If you refused to take part in Chase without a good excuse, you were taken to be an accomplice of the villain because you weren't helping him, help him to apprehend him. So that was also a crime. However, if you raise the hue and cry for no reason, just for the hell of it, to get everybody up in the middle of the night and annoy the neighbours, you would be fine sixpence. But today we have breaking and entering and burglary, depending on the same crime, just depends. Breaking and entering is in daylight hours. Burglary is after dark. But they had um, a specific crime called hedge breaking, which literally meant that you'd entered the house not by the front door, as you would if you were invited, but by climbing over the hedge or whatever, broken down the hedge to get in. So that was a specific crime. Crimes were pretty much what you'd expect. There is actually a reference just into the Tudor era to someone who was accused of stealing lead pipes in the dark. So, you know, when I mean, you get that started, don't you, people? You
0: absolutely do. I was just thinking that.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's a, a very um, modern thing. Um, There was no police force, even in London, but they had the ward watch. If you went out after dark on legitimate business, you were required to carry a flaming torch to light your way. That showed that you were respectable, you weren't out in the dark to commit a crime. Um, And if you weren't carrying the torch, you could be arrested by the ward watch. However, their jurisdiction was only in that ward. London was divided into about 14 wards, I think, maybe a few. And if you crossed the ward boundary, they couldn't follow you. So there was something called the marching watch which had jurisdiction throughout the city, they could cross the water boundaries. So you weren't out of trouble just by crossing the road into the upper wall. So that was the nearest we had to a police force. Really, Neighbourhood Watch was the, uh, the important crime prevention method.
0: Thinking about our lives today and the lives of people in in medieval times, what do you think are some of, there's obviously lots of differences, uh, what do you think are some of the similarities, I suppose, between the two?
1: Well, people themselves haven't changed very much. We've still got our petty grievances. We still want to better ourselves. We want the best for our children. We want health, safety, food. Shelter, and we care about our loved ones. So, people themselves aren't that much different. So, emotional problems would yeah. the same as now. There were more tricky things, though. for example, getting married. If you were royal or nobility, you were related in some ways to just about every other <laughs> royal and noble. Around And yet you weren't allowed to marry anyone closer than your fifth cousin. That caused problems for the nobles. They had to get dispensations from the Pope. And in fact, something I did in the book, which I got great fun out of, was that I was supposed to interview the people at the time. And I do interview Richard III who needed four four or five dispensations to marry his cousin and never. So that was a big problem. Also, drunk on a Saturday night, man in a tavern fancies the barmaid, says, what about it, darling? I'll see you at the back after, sort of thing. She could say, well, not unless you marry me. So he could say, all right. I, John, take you. What's your name? Oh, yeah, Jane, to be my lawful wedded wife. They are now, can we? And she would say, Well, I, Jane, take you, John, to be my lawful wedded husband. That could take place out the back of the tavern. And if they then had sex officially, they were husband and wife. The trouble comes Sunday morning when Jane says, um, oh, are you going to buy me a ring for my fingers, Johnny?" He goes, what? Why? Well, you married me last night, do No, I didn't. I was drunk. If Jane's pregnant, you know, big problems. So you could almost get married by accident. And because witnesses weren't required, it wasn't required to have the bands called or anything like that, just mutual consent in the present tense plus consummation. Even the church recognises that as a valid marriage. So that's a tricky
0: problem. Antonia, I have one more question for you. This has been so interesting, but I wanted to know, I know you've done so much research into medieval and Tudor period. Was there anything that you came across during this uh, journey of writing this book that really shocked you or, or surprised you, maybe something you, you hadn't come across yet? I was
1: rather shocked to discover that, Animals could be put on trial. Yes, in this country, there's a specific incident that happened when a horse uh, stumbles, falls on top of the woman who's riding him and breaks her neck, and the horse is accused of murder. Now, there was a difficulty here because in medieval times, the murder weapon was always, became the king's property. It didn't matter if it was a knife that cost twopence or an axe that cost sixpence or somebody's fancy sword. It was forfeit to the king. Now, the trouble with this horse business was that the horse was not only the murderer, it was also the murder weapon. So the coroner recorded that the woman was murdered by her horse and the horse was full fit to the king because it was the murder weapon. But it was such a grotty old nag that the king actually for went his, uh, his prize and said that her husband could keep the horse. But if uh, the king ever needed it, then the um, husband was handed over. But the real funny ones are in France. Northern France was the place. French churchmen seem to be totally mad. One uh, French bishop demands that all the caterpillars are tried for a uh, trespass and theft because they let yeah. all these cavities, uh, The trial date is set, but the caterpillars failed to turn up. Even though they were sent an official summons, the caterpillars didn't turn up. Now, if you didn't turn up for your trial, you were automatically assumed to be guilty. So the caterpillars were found guilty. But when the officers went out to arrest them, there were a lot of butterflies, but they couldn't actually find the
0: caterpillars. Oh, Tony, so, that is a wonderful yeah. story. They'd escaped. Yeah. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, rats were put on trial for stealing grain. And the worst one was a pig that actually bit a child and killed it <sighs> and they ate it. She was tried for murder and hanged. And her piglets that had joined in the feast were accused of being accessories, but they were let off due to the fact that they were so young and their wicked parent had left them astray. They actually paid the village hangman to hang the pig. And I bet they all had a very good pork dinner
0: afterwards. I cannot believe it. I'm kind of speechless. I've never, never heard stories like this before. No, so I, I imagine that you were shocked when you came across that.
1: Well, I certainly had a good laugh.
0: But one more thing, Tony, as you know, at the end of episodes of Talking Tutors, I like to ask my guest for a tutor takeaway, something for our listeners to explore after the show. So do you have a takeaway for us?
1: Well, I do have quite an old book, What the Tudors and Stuart Did for Us. It was a BBC book published in 2002. It's written by Adam Hart Davis. It was the book to go with the BBC television programme and the first half of the book is all about Tudors. And it's absolutely fantastic, but lots of illustrations. And I checked, it's still available on Amazon with hundreds of uh, secondhand copies available. Because it's so old, I don't think it's uh, an e-book or anything. But you want the pictures anyway in colour because it's just quite brilliant. And it's about Tudor science, There's the changing ideas, Tudor explorers who sort of discovered a complete new world, quite literally, and advances like the first flushing toilet and uh, costume as well, and lots of things it's a, looks in more depth at things you don't always associate with the um, Tudor everyday life so it's a very good book and I recommend it.
0: Oh wonderful and it's one that I don't have so I uh, feel another book purchase coming on as usual (laughs) so thank you and thank you Tony for taking the time to talk with us today and I look forward to hearing about your new project soon.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's this chance to talk to you, Natalie. I've uh, really enjoyed it.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. the behind the scenes news you'll also find me on twitter my handle is on the tudor trail and on instagram as the most happy 78. it's time now for us to re-enter the modern world as always i look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon